0: Should we get off the treadmill? Let's talk about it on this episode of Pushback. you're concerned about the direction our culture is heading, then maybe it's time to push back. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pushback. I'm Dr. Johnny, and I'm coming to you on a Thursday. As I mentioned uh, last podcast, I'm switching my release date to Thursday. It's working better with my work schedule and my quote-unquote day job um, it's actually a night job. <laughs> I work the night shift. And so uh, I appreciate uh, you being flexible. On that note, um, I would like to just say thank you. Uh, my listening numbers have certainly been increasing. And uh, that's so encouraging to me because we, I do this to make a difference. And uh, and I'm so glad that people are connecting with this. I've been getting such positive feedback from people uh, regarding the podcast. And that encourages me to keep going and keep doing what the Lord is asking me to do. Uh, It's so important that we are engaged in our culture. And uh, that just makes my heart go pitter-pat because um, it's critical that we as his kids are the one that's bringing real influence on the face of this earth. And the only way that we can do that is to fill the earth and subdue it, to be part of it, to engage it, to love it, love the world and love its people and and to pursue what's best. And I know this for a fact, God's ways are the best ways. The Bible says that I believe it. I've tried to live it. And I know that you have too. So let's keep going after the things of this world. Let's not be afraid of them. Let's not cower away from them. Let's not ignore them. Let's not go into the fetal position or build a bunker. I think it's time that we engage the culture and make a real difference. So that's what this podcast is about and I certainly thank your support. If you're willing to donate financially, that certainly helps uh, the production costs of this. You can go to pushbackculture.org, pushbackculture.org. There is a donate button there. I also would value your input uh, and especially your questions. If you have questions about any of the topics that I've raised, or you have a topic that you would like to see raised or discussed, or if there's things that you would like to see, hear my perspective on, please don't hesitate to uh, pass those on to me, and most likely it'll become a podcast in the future. Uh, yes, last uh, podcast uh, I discussed Martin Luther King, and um, it was called Chasing the Dream, and or Getting Closer to the Dream, that we can actually have a a mission statement, a purpose statement for our country in regards to healing uh, and race relations. And I think Martin Luther King laid it out beautifully when he said that he has a dream that his son would be judged by the character of his heart rather than the color of his skin. And I believe that needs to be our benchmark that needs to be our target and our goal for our country and we need to stay focused on that because i believe when we're looking at the woke liberal agenda it's actually pulling us away from that dream and not bringing us closer i want to go into a deeper dive on this today and i've been a little bit nervous about this podcast because it it has required me to dig deeper into myself and into the understanding of the topic because I'm not naive, sitting here as a lighter brown-skinned man, and uh, completely understanding or realizing, I should say, the truth that I have not had to experience bias and prejudice like so many other of my fellow country people. And because of that, I don't think that it disqualifies me from talking about it. In fact, I believe that it it actually requires me to lean into that because of the people that I love and because of this country that I love and because of the pain that's here. So too much has been given, much is required. And, and, uh, and so I, I, I understand that I don't have personal perspective, but I do want to have understanding And I do want to have a clear mind. And I do want to be a voice of reason and of wisdom in these times. And so, Lord, that's my prayer for me and for this podcast as we talk about these things. But I did get on to a man named Coleman Hughes. Coleman Hughes, a young man, a darker brown skin man, who I believe offers a perspective that I can really connect with. And I appreciate his eloquence and his uh, truthfulness and his forthrightness as he brings this forward. And so... It, most of what I'm saying today comes from his perspective, but I feel like I can really hitch my my trailer to what he is doing and the the voice that he has. Now, he is an advocate for what we've been discussing as colorblindness. Now, colorblindness has been something that I've really leaned into because it started with uh, being on a committee at the hospital. Maybe you remember this story from a previous podcast. Um, and we're talking about sort of health equity. And equity is sort of this new word that has come out. And, and it's, it's kind of migrated from the word equality to the word equity um, and leaning into more equal outcomes rather than equal opportunities. And that certainly has been the agenda of more of the, of the woke uh, liberal agenda is to pursue equity, and I've been on this sort of equity committee, and there was an article that seemed to be negative towards colorblindness, and it made me scratch my head to a point where I sort of responded and said, you know, since when has colorblindness been the enemy? Why why has colorblindness been the problem? And the response by one of my colleagues was very well put, um, but she said, it's the concern or the fear that a colorblind stance will simply ignore the past and not pursue healing in the future. Sort of like I'm okay where I am kind of response. And that's the concern. And that's the the definition of colorblindness for those who are in pain and are hurting. So I I understand that perspective and I hear it. But as we talked about last week, I believe that we have to have a goal. We have to have a trajectory. We have to have a target for where we're heading as a culture. And then our actions and our behaviors need to be pushed th- through that lens, through that filter, and find out if it's bringing us closer to that target or further away. I think that's a healthy way of looking at society. Well, those Coleman Hughes um believes that colorblindness is the goal and is the trajectory. So I wanna read what he has to say. I'm gonna do a few quotes and interject my own points here as well. He says in the 1960s and 70s, the conversation about race was substantially similar to what it is today in the sense that you had Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement on the one hand. On the other hand, you had more radical folks like the Black Power Movement and the Black Panthers, and you had an ideological conflict between them. But even then, you would see radical anti-racists such as Black Power Movement admit that in the long run, our goal as a country should be to move towards a colorblind society. A society in which race matters less and less over time, in which you can go for longer and longer periods of time without thinking about race, whether that's your race or the race of your friends. Now, I want to stop there and be very clear not to be super redundant, but I think it's important to emphasize points over and over and over again until it becomes part of who we are. Now, we have to understand that my perspective is that there are no races. It's not just my perspective, it's the biblical perspective. We are all descendants of Adam and Eve and ultimately Noah. And it's science's perspective that actually through the Human Genome Project proved that we are all one race, the human race. And there can be two people in Sweden, and one of those people could have more genetically similar to somebody in China than their fellow colleague, their fellow citizen in Sweden. That's because that's the way genetics work. And the, the, our outside skin, the number, the amount of melanin that we have in our skin um, bears very little on that. So we are one race. So when you talk about race and we talk about race in this podcast, please be very clear that my perspective is that there is no race. However, in our conversation, in our cultural conversation, race is in the forefront. Um, Now, what has changed is that today, prominent anti-racists and others at the forefront of the modern anti-racism movement, it would be difficult to find a single one that would even admit that the long-term goal for our country is to move towards a colorblind society. That shining star, the North Star, has been abandoned entirely, which makes a very big difference from even yesterday's brand of radical anti-racism. If you look up colorblindness and just put the caveat race in Google, you will get 10 articles in a row about why colorblindness is wrong. Some will say it actually is racist. And yet when you poll Republicans and Democrats, you find a remarkably high level of support for race-neutral policies in general. On the whole, people do not like when race is considered as a factor in things like college admission or who gets hired or who gets promoted. By and large, most people of every race believe that the merit principle is basically the best way to go. We have this elite consensus that colorblindness is horrible, that is basically white supremacy. At the same time, we have among people at large a general sense that race neutral treatment is actually the best option. And so I'm trying to give a defense of race neutrality and colorblindness. So this is Coleman Hughes um uh, a well-spoken young man talking about this. You, I know you, I mentioned, you know, the Minneapolis teachers' um, last podcast about creating this this policy of hiring based on the color of skin. And I heard on the radio that there are lawsuits all over the place because they're supposed to be equal opportunity employers, and you cannot discriminate based on color of skin. That's law. And so it'll be interesting to see the legal pushback to that policy. He goes on to say, the critique of colorblindness is that you need to see race and pay very close attention to race and to our racial identities. If you're going to identify racism, you need to see me as black. How can you see racism without seeing race? That applies to every interactions to your social life and everything else. When it comes to public policy, the idea is that America has been littered with a history of racialized and race-based harm, starting with slavery and the aftermath of slavery, convict leasing, the rise of Jim Crow, redlining, and in all kinds of ways, large and small, in which black people, specifically as a race group, were targeted with policies that were detrimental. And so one idea is that we need to put race into our current laws in order to essentially pay back black people for that history, to restore at least some part of what was lost with all those harmful policies, and to bring black people where they might have been, if not for the history of white supremacist policies. And they go on in this article to make the distinction, which I think is very important for this podcast is that my colleague, when I talked about colorblindness, was concerned about racism blindness, where we are proposing or an advocate of race blindness. There's a difference between race blindness and racism blindness. And Hughes says, I love that distinction. The critics of colorblindness are, in a sense, narrowly right about the fact that we all do see race. We do. Most people who say that are are speaking metaphorically. What they are really saying is, I try my very best to treat people without regard to race. Critics of colorblindness often seize on that phrase, I don't see race. See, part of the portion of this podcast, part of my heart in this podcast is that we know how to speak about it. I think this is an important distinction for us to say, I don't see race uh, actually is a red flag to those who are in pain because they, they would sense that we would say, well, we're just going to avoid it or to ignore it. We cannot become racism blind. So when we see discrimination that we're able to see it, monitor it, change it, help it, But I believe that we can be race blind, we can be color blind, and that we don't treat people, we try to treat people without regard to race. I think that's an important phrase that I want you to remember. I try my very best to treat people without regard to race. That's what color blindness is in my definition. And so they seem like they have a legitimate point of view here. What is true that yes, we all see race, but we really should strive to treat people without regard to their race, and we should celebrate that virtue. And the thing about colorblindness is that it's actually the only by reference to a race neutral or colorblind standard that anyone is able to ever identify racism. It is not true that people who advocate colorblindness like myself don't see racism. In fact, people who reject colorblindness often end up blind to many kinds of racism. So he tries to explain this by giving some examples. He was talking about uh, police profiling and pulling people over based on the color of their skin. And he said, really, the best test is to see what happens after the sun goes down. It's called the veil of darkness, where they can't actually see the color of the skin and then compare those numbers to what happens during the daylight. And if they're different, if there's a different uh, proportion of black people getting pulled over during the day, then we know that there is something there. And so it's actually colorblindness. It's actually the veil of darkness that actually exposes true racism. I hope that makes sense. I'm trying to figure this out in my brain as well. And so he used the example of an automatic machine that detects people running through red lights. And it doesn't, obviously a machine can't be racist. And so it just checks the license plate number. And if you're going through the red light, it takes a picture of the license plate number and sends you a ticket. And so we can, we can look at that and we can say, well, that can't be a racist act. He said, but there are many neighborhoods where black people get more tickets running through red lights than white people do because black people run more red lights than white people do in that neighborhood. <laughs> it's a meritocracy. It's a, it's a merit based measure that we can use against people and, and a people measure and actually expose if there's really true racism there. And he said we should use all of our resources and money for those kinds of tests to see and to try to draw out and and expose a real bias or a real discrimination or a real prejudice that takes place rather than just say we need to give an equal number of tickets to white and black people. That never feels right, never looks right. And it's not getting us closer to the dream. The next thing he talks about is something called reparations, which is sort of a payback, and he alludes to that in my last sentence. Let me read what he says about reparations. We move from talking about equality of opportunity to equality of outcome, which is something we can never achieve anywhere and have never have anywhere before. He talked about, you know, the NBA and the Major League Baseball. Three-fourths of the NBA players are black. Now, we would look at that and say, well, there is a disparity in the numbers of, of minorities versus white people, but we know that that's a merit-based league. You have to be good enough to make the NBA, and so we have absolutely no problem with that. We look at Major League Baseball, and I think only 7 to 8% of Major League Baseball players are black, dark brown skin. And we can look at that and we say, well, we don't really have a problem with that because a lot of it is cultural and and ethnic, uh, how you were raised. And so there's a lot of of, uh, Caribbean and Hispanic players in baseball, very few African-American. But it's merit-based. You have to be good enough to make Major League Baseball. None of us have any problem with that because it's about equal opportunity rather than equal outcomes. But I think that we would become comfortable with making our systems colorblind regardless of what the result is because that's actually what fairness consists in, not inequality of outcome. You always have to be sensitive to the fact that when you use policies that include racial preferences, it's a zero-sum game. My friends, I believe this is critical. Please lean into this. He says you are creating a new class of aggrieved victims who may never forget that you put them at the back of the line. You create, in essence, a never-ending cycle of victimhood and aggrievement, just like tit-for-tat violence never actually ends when the tat corrects the tit. (laughs) You killed my brother, I killed your cousin. Have you ever heard of a spat that just ended there? We're increasingly creating a white working class that notices that the policies coming out of the Biden administration put white people at the back of the line pandemic aid for restaurants, aid to farmers. They notice that their race is a determinant uh, to getting into elite colleges. Business owners notice that their race is a determinant to them getting a government contract, and it creates competing victim classes, which remember the injustices against them vividly. That creates a very toxic long-term situation for race relations in our country. Now, those of African-American descent would say, well, wow, wow, poor you. This is what we had to deal with for decades. And I get that. I understand that. But when reparation or the idea of reparation becomes revenge, it's about vengeance and revengeance. It becomes a cycle that is never enough. That's why in Romans 12, it talks about whatever is possible within you, live at peace with one another. And then it says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Even the Lord knows that he needs to take it out of the hands of man because man, it will be a never ending vicious cycle. And it needs to be into the spirit realm because that's where we battle. Our battle is never against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. So it's the Lord God, almighty Jehovah God that has to run these battles for us. And when there is injustice here on this earth, guess what? Vengeance is his and he gets to repay and we get to forgive. Coleman Hughes goes on to say, I think there's an attitude that nothing could possibly ever be enough. And I'm certain if reparations were paid today, no matter how large the check, tomorrow we'd be reading in the Times editorial asking, "How dare you think that reparations represents the end of payment to Black people for slavery?" There's never enough payment; it's an unending cycle. They even alluded to President Obama running, or Barack Obama running for president, and and people's response on both sides were where a black man could never be elected president. We're still too racist. We're not even close. He says, "Then we did it." And right after everyone said, "Well, actually, this doesn't mean anything." See, this is the this is the problem. Not that Barack Obama being elected would solve all the problems. It isn't. But there, there's they can't even be the celebration of that because it's never going to be enough. He said, "We are very dis- we are on a very dishonest treadmill." With ourselves as a country, as we run towards this goal of closure with our history, and with every step the ground moves beneath us, maybe we should get off the treadmill. Maybe we should get off the treadmill. They asked him. What about this mission statement? What about this goal? Is it even possible? Is, is the way society and culture are moving? Is this even a possible goal? Is Dr. Johnny crazy thinking that a target of colorblindness? Was Martin Luther King Jr. crazy thinking that his son could be judged based on the character of his heart, not the color of his skin? He says, I don't know. It could just keep going on in the same direction. Some days I have the sense that Gen Z is so absorbed by its race obsession and its gender identity obsession that all these things are just going to represent new norms for society by the time I'm older or middle-aged. But other days, I feel that so much of the race and gender-obsessed ideas run counter to what people actually want. That they don't have much staying power that in this day and age, racial segregation doesn't have much staying power because I think people like each other too much. You know, the idea that you can... I'm, I'm sorry. The truth is, I don't know how everything is going to shake out. But rather than passively watching... I would like to be an advocate for the idea of a colorblind society and a society where you can go for weeks or months at a time without thinking about your race. That's my dream too. Several people, I'm sorry, I don't think that we want to be thinking about race more. We want to be thinking about it less. He says, so I would be tempted to short sell woke race obsession in the long run. When it's no longer trendy and people feel less pressure to agree with it because a lot of it is unsustainable. My friends, I just believe that is so well spoken and it's my heart in this matter as well. I believe it's the Lord's heart because he didn't create races in the first place. He created us to be one blood. It says in the book of Acts, we are to be one blood, one people, one body, united for one purpose, and that's for the kingdom of heaven. And so I believe that we can pursue colorblindness. I feel more empowered now. It feels more right. It feels like it's the target. Is there still some healing that needs to take place? Of course. Is there still some wrongs that need to be righted? Yes, it does. But we can't sit, like he just said, idle and do nothing. We can't just sit and watch. It's not our role here on this earth. And if you're doing that, then you're actually part of the problem and not part of the solution. We can inject ourselves not with anger, not with bitterness, but we can inject ourselves into the national conversation so that we can bring wholeness and life and healing to this important, important subject. You might be me and live sort of in rural America and we don't have a lot of diversity. I'm just being honest. But that doesn't disqualify us or or allow us to sit on the sideline. We have fellow citizens who are hurting and who are in pain and need our attention, need our help, need our solutions. I believe someone like Holman Hughes, who can speak to this, is so vitally important. And I bless him and thank the Lord for him. And I wanna be one of those voices as well, a voice of reason, a voice of healing. And I believe that we can be that together. So let's go together now to set and shape the culture.